All right, hey, welcome. Glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 1. If you don't have one, we'll have it on the screen. We also have Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. The pew, pew rack seems like a torture device. Of like, it's going to be painful and it's going to smell. It's just like, and welcome to church. We have pew racks. Horrible, horrible. It's closing prayer. I'm just kidding. All right. Well, uh, glad you're here. We, as uh, Dave mentioned, we are in a series we're calling In, uh, as we're looking at the way God comes in to humanity, into the mess, and uh, how he calls us in as well. And uh, really today, and this series, we're looking at how Christmas is essentially about one great central reality. That Christmas, the one great central reality of Christmas is that God has become human in Jesus, uh, he's come into the world. He's come into history, into humanity, into the messiness of being vulnerable and accessible, available in a world that would ultimately kill him. Uh, and so this, this great central reality of Christmas uh, has a big word to describe it. Anyone know what our big word is that describes the great central reality of Christmas? Any? Incarnation. Incarnation. Is it up there? No? Okay. It's good. Uh, yeah, inc- incarnation, right? Inca- so ca- incarnation comes from the, the Latin uh, carne, right? The, the carnal flesh, the, the meat, the carne asada, right? So it's like <laughs> come into the flesh, like the, the, the meaty stuff of us. And so it's incarnation. And so Christmas is about this, this one event, this, uh, this incarnation. God has become flesh. And last week, Dave and Paul interacted over... The, the idea that we, we are called to step in to the hard stuff of the world is part of what it means to be a Jesus follower, actually. That we follow him in the pattern of his own incarnation. And uh, we, we take on the burden and, and, and absorb hurt uh, in the world in order to love and serve and, and bring about healing and justice. To give ourselves away the way he gave himself away. So I want to um, talk to you about that because it's costly, but it's also hopeful, right? It's not in vain. Paul says that you know our work in the Lord is not in vain because Jesus is alive. And so I want to talk to you about this question of what kind of people would live like that? Like what what kind of people would give themselves away like that? Uh, lots of people might do those sorts of things, but how... How do you live that sort of way? There's a difference, right? You can do things, but living in a way is different. You're characterized by a posture that looks like God. And how do, what kind of person lives that way as a way of life, not just doing good things, but, but that way? So here's the answer I think the Bible gives to that question. It says that the people who live that kind of way, who step in and live engaged as, as, as the pattern of Christ um, the kind of people who live that way are the people who get what happened on Christmas. Just very simply. They're the people who embrace what happened on Christmas. They allow their lives to be shaped by the great central reality of Christmas, that God has come in the flesh. Now, the, the New Testament claims about Jesus make zero sense if the incarnation didn't happen. right? So either Christmas is just kind of sentimental and commercial, 
or something really happened. Think about how sentimental Christmas is in our culture. We sentimentalize Christmas. It's like this ideal season. If you get in an argument with your family at Christmas time, you know, somebody inevitably says, end at Christmas, right? We idealize it. We're sentimental about Christmas. We feel we ought to be on our best behavior and we ought to be very generous. At the same time, it has this conflicting value of, you know, consumerism. Like, I want, I want you to get me cool stuff. Uh, and so, uh, it's either this kind of sentimental, commercialized thing, or it is actually something that's changing everything. And so, uh, there really isn't a middle ground about Christmas. It, it's either sentimentalized nothingness, or it's what the New Testament says, and it changed everything. So, uh, listen to Lewis. C.S. Lewis has this line about the incarnation and how significant it is. He says, the incarnation of Christ... He says, is the central point of Christianity. And if it happened at all, it's the central chapter of Earth's history. The incarnation is the central miracle asserted by Christians, is the chapter on which the novel turns and it illuminates all history and nature. So he says it's kind of a big deal around here. And we we ought to pay attention to it. So what does this central miracle mean? Like, how, how do we make sense of it in, in our lives? How do we understand it? So the, the Gospels, or the, the eyewitness uh, testimony about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give these accounts of Jesus. Matthew and Luke give accounts of the, the birth narratives, like what happened around the time of his birth, and before it, and just after. Mark picks up right at Jesus at 30-something, And then John, though, rewinds much further and goes all the way back into eternity. John's gospel goes back to before creation to describe who Jesus is. He says, if you want to have a clear picture of Jesus, you have to go before uh, before the incarnation itself. So let's look at what John says to describe Jesus. He goes back into eternity and he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John says, describes Jesus as the Word. Um, the, the Word the personal expression of God. He says, look, the, this word, he, was, he, was, he had eternal existence before creation. He was already before creation. He was with God in relationship, intimate, face-to-face type relationship with God. That's what the Greek word for was, or was, uh, that's the Greek word for with meant. It's pros, it's face-to-face, it's intimate. And he, not only was he in relation and communion with God, he was God, literally the God is the Word. God shares, uh, the Word shares the characteristics of God. Now, I don't know what your God picture is. We all have a God picture. Every one of us has an emotional, intellectual kind of sense of what we think God is like. All of you have one. Whether you, you believe in Him or not, you have some kind of impression of what you think about Him if He did exist at all. Uh, Karl Barth once remarked that in the Church of Jesus Christ, there are no non-theologians, right? You are a theologian if you have any thought about God at all. You're either an adequate one or a really inadequate one. You have good theology or bad theology, right? And so, uh, and so, 
Some of you have a picture of God that is uh, largely cold, unemotional, and kind of a distant landlord, right? He's, he's kind of rather unconcerned with your life, that things just kind of happen and he isn't too concerned about it, that life is really more or less what you make of it. Um, he can't really help you and maybe doesn't want to, right? So that's kind of your emotional impression of God. Others of you have a more engaged God, but he's a traffic cop, right? You have traffic cop God. And he's essentially a moral manager. He's got his spiritual speed gun out to get you, right? He's just kind of waiting for you to screw up. Got you. Got you, right? Like the moral manager, it's this traffic cop in your your head. And so uh, obedience it isn't really motivated out of love. I mean, we just sang these great songs about, uh, you know, this af- affection for Jesus, like our affection, our devotion. You know, we adore you. That's, that's the language of love, which is what God's after. And yet, traffic cop God doesn't generate feelings of love, right? It, feeling, it, it generates feelings of fear or pride, right? I really hope I don't get caught messing up or I don't, you know, mess up or I... I Look at how good I am at keeping the rules. And so he's about keeping the rules. Um, doesn't motivate us out of love. Still, others of you have maybe a different picture of God. So there's the landlord who's very distant, the traffic cop who's engaged but not nice. And then you, ha- you have uh, what I'd call the permissive parent. The p- permissive parent God. He's happy as long as you're happy. I think of you know Amy Poehler in Mean Girls. I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom, right? And she's serving cocktails to teenagers. And that that's the picture I have of the permissive parent. He's actually you know there to serve your needs, you know whatever it is you want. Uh, he's not there to transform you or bring about change character. And he certainly isn't interested in judging you either. And so what what is it that John is getting at when he describes Jesus as the Word? What's he up to? So John, in describing Jesus as the word, he, he uses this term logos. And what he's saying is, first of all, whatever, whatever it is that you think of God, whatever your God picture is, unless it's focused through the lens of Jesus, it's entirely inaccurate. Right? Whatever your view of God is, unless it's focused through the lens of Jesus, it's distorted. That's, what he's, that's the first thing he's getting at here. Okay, And so... John's saying he's the word. So it's a Greek word logos. And, and, and to a Jewish uh, person, you would hear the idea of God's word as this personal self-expression of God. My word expresses myself, right? It's just kind of this outward manifestation of myself. And so to an ancient Jewish mind, you would have heard the word of God and you would have thought about God's mighty word that brought about creation that reveals his own self and will, and that rescues and delivers people. And the word is associated with God's uh, powerful activity. And yet, John also grabs a word that not only has resonance in a Jewish ear to think about God's powerful creative activity, but it has this echo in every Greek-speaking uh, ear in his world. See, uh, the Greek mindset understood this word as a very it's a very important idea in the greek background it's the supreme reality of of everything essentially it's this idea that uh it's this pervasive impersonal ordering principle behind everything it uh you might say uh it it surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together right like um 
I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. So anyway, actually, that's a to- the, the force is actually more Buddhist and not very Greek stoic. But the idea that it's impersonal and it gives everything meaning is kind of what, what this idea of a logos was all about. And so the logos is where we get our idea for logic. It, it, in other words, the philosophers before Jesus' day were in search for the logic of everything. What is the principle behind everything that gives all life meaning, that gave, gives order to things? That's what the logos was about. And so, uh, you know, I remember the first time, it was a few years ago, one of, somebody in my family got me the Amazon Fire Stick for Christmas. And it's like this little USB thing you plug into your TV to stream Amazon Prime Media. Well, I had never heard about it. I didn't ask for it. I had no idea what it was. And so I just pulled this black thing out of a box that's supposed to plug into something. And I, had, I was like, what, what's the meaning of this? Like, what do I do with it? And of course, as a man, I, I resorted, you know, finally, at last, as a last resort to reading the instructions. Uh, you know, it's like, plug it into everything. Like, does it fit on my wife? Does it go, where does it go? And so I finally read the instructions and you understand the purpose behind it, right? It's there to help stream media. And so the logos is discovered. I could be happy, right? And that was the Greek notion that the Greeks thought if you could discover the logos, everything in life would have meaning and you could truly be happy. Some of you are still with me. Others of you are waiting for this to now get practical and Christmassy. (laughs) We're picking up momentum. So just the reward is in the end. Just keep with me. Okay. So John says about the word, the logos, he says, in him was life and that life was the light of mankind. In other words, the world's a very dark place. The world's dark. You've maybe noticed this lately. And, uh, you know, we, we wish there was a logos to order life and give us meaning. And so people don't know the logos, he says. They don't, they, they, or they've rejected it the Logos. And so we're wandering around down here in the dark. And so the good news from John is that the light uh, that was shining in the darkness and, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. The darkness can't master it. And so how does this light and this life come to bear on our world? How does it intersect with our stories? Um, John's going to tell us what the word, the Logos does in verse 14. I'm going to break it down phrase by phrase for you and just show you three things that this means for us and how it shapes the kind of people who live uh, in the world in intentional ways. Look at what he says about the word. What does he do? The word, John says, became flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. There's three things I want to show you about the incarnation, what it means for us. First is that it's the end of meaninglessness. Then it's the end of religion, and it's also the start of a new pattern. So the first thing, it's the end of meaninglessness. The end of meaninglessness. The word became flesh. What do I mean by meaninglessness? Remember what I said about the Logos and the Greek mind, that it was this impersonal force that permeates everything and it gives order and meaning to everything. It was the ideal, right? There is some ideal out there, right? And it was supposed to give reality some meaning. But it's one thing to say that there's an ideal, and it's another thing to live in reality, isn't it? I mean, we all know this, right? There's an ideal you have of yourself, and then there's reality, isn't it? There's an ideal you have of your friends and your family, and then there's reality, right? We can idealize things, 
And so the, the philosophers for centuries had searched for the Logos. But by the time of Jesus, they had kind of rather given up and said, well, the ideal may be out there, but we've got to deal with the real. With the real. And so, in other words, things are kind of meaningless, meaningless and you just kind of have to make do. And so the result was this kind of split into a couple of different philosophical schools to deal with the, the lack of logos, all right? If there is none or you can't know it, what do you do? Well, there were two groups. One was called uh, the Stoics. The Stoics were a group of folks, you probably wouldn't want to be one. They weren't super fun. Uh, they basically said, there's no real way to know meaning. The best you can kind of do is be noble and virtuous and controlled in the face of the nothingness, right? Right? And all the kind of predetermined course of things in the world. So the Stoic life motto was, suck it up and try your best. Right? How's that for fun? Right? So Stoics, suck it up, try your best. Now, there's another school of thought. And these, I, you probably would fall into this camp, I'm guessing, because you live here in Portland. Uh, these are the Epicureans. The Epicureans said, we agree with you, Stoics. Life's meaningless. Uh, but why bother being noble? That doesn't sound like very much fun. We ought to just get the most for ourselves and have as much fun as possible. Eat good food, drink good wine, have good everything. Right? And so the Epicurean motto was live it up and enjoy the best. Right? So on one hand, you, you, know, you wouldn't probably want to be a Stoic. I'd say Epicurean philosophy is alive and well in Portland today, wouldn't you say? I mean, we have great restaurants, we have great fun. It's great here uh, if you're an Epicurean. And so you might want a stoic for a neighbor, but you might not want to be one, right? So uh, John is saying, hey, look, you philosophers. John's saying, you philosophers, you've been looking in the wrong place. Right? Been digging in the wrong spot, right? You've been looking in the wrong place. You've been looking for a principle. You should be looking for a person, is what he's saying. So there's no ordering principle behind everything, but there is a personal word become flesh, who gives order to everything. You see, um, we see it today, right? Um, he's saying, look, look at, look, at your, look at your surroundings. There are people who are saying life's meaningless, right? There's this new wave of atheism that's actually forming churches, right? Like, let's gather together and be atheists together and be good, right? Uh, others of us live in this Epicurean level, like that just comfort and pleasure is our highest good. Um, you think about, you know, some of Woody Allen's films. This, this isn't just, you know, only for the intellectuals. This is for, you know, it's for film. Um, you know, a lot of his films are saying, look, there ought to be a God, but the trouble is the world's so unjust uh, that there's no real meaning in life, okay? Uh, so the best thing you can do is kind of suck it up and be good. Right? He's a stoic, I think. Um, and so there's this scene, and it's an older film, Crimes and Misdemeanors, where there's an older Jewish father, and he's saying, look, there's a God, and he's looking and he's saying, and he'll punish people. He'll punish injustice. And, and there comes this point around the dinner table where his guests are saying, uh, where was God during the Holocaust? Right? Where was your God during that? Where's God during all of the injustice? Right? And so uh, there's just too much injustice for there to be a God. And so finally somebody asks the old Jewish father and says, if you had to choose between God and truth, what would you choose? Uh, and he thinks and he says, I'd choose God. Right? And so Woody Allen's trying to say, look, there's this wall, this concrete wall between the ideal and the real. There's this gap between ideal and real. Sure, there should be a God. That sounds ideal. 
But the problem is, the facts is, you know, that the world's ugly and it's an evil place. And so nothing really means anything. If God's there, he's silent. And, and so there's this tremendous wall between the ideal and the real. But look back at John 1. John 1, 14 says that the logos became flesh. He says, you don't have to choose between ideal and real. You don't have to choose between truth and God. He's saying, look, God has become a fact. God has come into view, right? He's saying, look, God in the word has punched through the concrete wall between the ideal and the real. It's like the, the, the logos becomes like this Kool-Aid guy just bursting through the wall, you know, of reality. Oh, yeah, right? And so that's, what, that's, that's the image that comes to my mind, you know? And so we have the Stoics and the Epicureans, John is saying, you're wrong, right? Life does have meaning. The incarnation means that God isn't abstract. He's not aloof. He's not a distant landlord. Uh, He's become physical and touchable. He's become flesh. He's entered time and space, and he's become historical fact in Jesus. And so that means that you don't have to just suck it up and do your best. And it also means that there's more to life than just living it up and enjoying the best. Let's make this personal. It's great abstract stuff. Now, let's get real about it. Where does this intersect your life? See, if Jesus is the Logos, if he is the person who gives existence meaning and orders all things, then who is your Logos? What gives your life meaning and orders your daily life and your interior life? See, is Jesus... The one who gives your life meaning? Or something else giving your life meaning? Are you allowing Jesus to order and give meaning to the daily dimensions of life? Does he give meaning to you in the quiet if you have quiet in your life? Does he give meaning to you in the hustle and the bustle and the noise of your life? Is he the Logos for you? And Christians, I think, are very good at giving lip service to this, but functionally don't live with Jesus as the one who assigns meaning to their life. And how, do, how does the Bible tell you you know uh, that you believe something? How do you know when you believe? Is it when you agree? When you say something? It's when you do something. Right? Actions are actually the proof of trust. And so, what's the step of faith for you today? It says, I'm going to trust Jesus to be my logos, the one who gives my life meaning in my relationships, at my work, and my self-understanding, my identity. My... What's, the, what's the step today of saying, today, to have Jesus actually give my life meaning means I actually need to follow through this way. So will you allow Jesus to be your Logos and not just an idea? Not just agree that he's the Logos, but become the shaping person in your life that gives every moment meaning. See, the, the people who live in ways that are utterly self-giving are the people who firmly believe God is reality. Right? They, that he literally gives every moment meaning. They don't just give lip service to it. See, this is the first thing. The incarnation means that meaninglessness is over. So you'll never sacrificially uh, uh, live your life if you only sort of have meaning, right? 
If life's meaning is what you make of it, you'll always resort to comfort. You'll always go Epicurean, right? Uh, I think, as a northwest Portlander, that's probably the way you'll go. Unless you have a greater meaning in your life. You'll never live redemptively unless the Redeemer is the one who gives meaning to your life. Are you with me? Okay, so second thing. The incarnation not only means the end of meaninglessness, it means the end of religion. In philosophy, there's a gap between the ideal and the real. And the incarnation, Christmas, closes the gap. Right? Jesus comes punching through the concrete wall of reality. In religion, on the other hand, there's a gap between the holy and the unholy. Right? In religion, there's a gap between what's whole and what's corrupt. Right? What's, what's clean and what's defiled. And so... The incarnation closes the gap, making us reconciled to God. Look, look at what John's saying. He says, uh, the, the word made his dwelling among us. So not only did the word become flesh, he made his dwelling among us. Now, this is very easy to miss the significance of this word. Is this the first time God has dwelt with his people in Jesus? No, when else in this story did God dwell with his people? In the Exodus, right? As he sets his, his people free from slavery and he comes to dwell in their midst in a tent called a tabernacle. And this tent or this tabernacle was the place where the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that Indiana Jones found much later on, right? Sat in the Holy of Holies and God, God's glory and presence rested over the Ark. And, and to enter the, 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 the tabernacle, you had to do sacrifice. And you actually you had to be a priest. Not just anybody could come into the, to the holy place, right? You, you had to come through sacrifice. And only once a year after making atonement for the sin of all the people and because of the corruption of sin and idolatry, it was a place where God's glory rested. But see, the people of God failed to keep their end of the covenant relationship and they filled the land with injustice and with idolatry. And there's this place in the prophets. The prophet Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of God departing from the temple. The dwelling place of God was now no longer the dwelling place of God. God up and left because of the sin and idolatry and injustice of the people. And so now, to a Jewish ear, when you hear that God has made his dwelling among us, it's staggering. It's absolutely incredible. The the Greek word for Dwelling is literally tabernacle. It's the same word as is used in the, Jew- in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's the, it's the same word. And so it, Jesus literally tabernacled. The word literally tabernacled among us. He's made his dwelling. So here's the question. Did his coming to dwell with us come as a result of people's good work? Not for a second. Had Israel earned the return of the glory? No, not anywhere close, right? In fact, when the glory returned, they killed him. And so it means, it means a revolution has taken place in the incarnation. God has come to dwell with us by his own initiative, by his own grace. What does this mean? It means that the old way that you used to try to connect to God has been replaced, right? The old way couldn't work. Because it couldn't deal with the problem. Because we refused to connect to him. And so it means now that God has come to connect to us. If connection is dependent on us, it's not working. 
Connection now is dependent on him. So religion always tries to compensate for spiritual disconnection, but it can't get deep enough. And so it's in the incarnation, right, where God deals with the actual problem, which lies deep in human nature, right? So the incarnation means the end of religion because God has become human to end the problem of our spiritual disconnection. That's what the incarnation is about. Humanity has forever been running away from God and religion has always been trying to figure out how to close the gap. Through my own earning, how do I close the gap? But Jesus is the mediator between the holy and the unholy. He's the mediator between humanity and God. And he mediates this new relationship in his own person as the God-man. It's absolutely stunning. So, he closes the gap. Somebody in first service said, like, it's like, we don't have to mind the gap, we have to mind Jesus. And I said, I almost said that, but I thought it would be too cheesy. <laughs> but now I've gone and said it, so there you go. So there's this, there's this reality where Jesus has done in the incarnation something we couldn't do. He's taken sinfulness, our own corruption, our own spiritual disconnection into himself. He's absorbed it. And so there's this great line in one of the church fathers that says that the unassumed is the unhealed. What? What does that mean? The unassumed is the unhealed. It means this. It means that if God hasn't actually physically assumed, taken on our corrupted human nature, then our corrupted human nature is left unhealed. That God has to come and take it on himself. So he has to take on the infection of what's broken in us and absorb it into himself. And so that's why John's gospel talks about the glory, the glory of Jesus that tabernacled among us in John. Where, where does the story arc of God's glory go in John? Glory is ultimately about the suffering of Jesus. This is what he says in John 12. He says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. You want to know how God's glorified? Truly, truly, I tell you. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He says, my death is my glory. He's talking about his crucifixion as the place where he's most glorified. What kind of God is glorified in suffering? Is this a narcissistic God? A vindictive God? A tyrant? Is this a traffic cop God? No. If he's not a landlord, he's become flesh. He's also not a traffic cop because he's made his dwelling among us. And he's glorified in his suffering. He's a humble God. He's a forgiving God who's a servant who gives up his power to bring people into fellowship with himself through love. And he closes the gap in his death. So what's your God picture today? What's your God picture? You see, if you take John 1 seriously, even if you're considering taking John 1 seriously... Your picture of God can't be a distant landlord and can't be a traffic cop because he's engaged in the flesh and he's dwelt with us and he's shown us his glory and his criminal's death. See, God isn't a moral manager who just says perform so that I can approve of you. He's the God who tabernacles, who comes to you to draw you into his life and make you holy. The incarnation ends religion. It ends it entirely because it says, give up all of your sincere and destined to fail efforts to connect with me. Simply embrace my successful and final effort to connect with you. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this, this incarnation. He says, he calls, he calls this incarnation the, a good infection. He says, he came 
to this world to become a man so that he might spread to other men and women the kind of life he has. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And he goes on and he says, what then is the difference which he has made to the whole human mass? It's this, that the business of becoming a son of God, of being turned from a created thing into a begotten thing, of passing over from temporary biological life into timeless spiritual life has been done for us. He says humanity is already saved in principle. We individuals have to appropriate that salvation. But the really tough work, the bit we could not have done for ourselves, has been done for us. We have not got to climb up into spiritual life by our own efforts. It has already come down into the human race. If we will only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it was fully present and who in spite of being God is also a real man, he will do it in us and for us. Remember what I said about good infection. One of our own race now has this new life. If we get close to him, we shall catch it from him. That's what the incarnation is about. God becomes flesh. So if this belief is real to you, if it's central to you, if it's actual and real in your life, it will change everything. See, you won't be able to love people radically. This is one of our vision state, our, our, our vision things. We say, hey, we want to be a community that... that is about radical love. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to do it without this belief. You might be motivated by guilt or pride for a season, but you'll eventually give up, right? So if this isn't real, it it won't change you. But if it is real, it changes the very motivation of every bit of your living. You won't get bogged down in a cycle of religious earning, but your efforts will flow from this place of the gap that Jesus has already closed for you. you. You'll live as an infected person, instead of a religious person. It makes sense. All right. The last thing I want to show you here is that, that, that the incarnation also shows us a new pattern. A new pattern. Uh, John says that the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, uh, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, he says, full of grace and truth. Now, we could have an entire sermon on the grace and truth of Jesus, but the, here's the point I need to make quickly, and that's this. The people who grasp the central reality of Christmas, that God has come in the flesh, are people who pattern their lives after the pattern of Jesus. Okay, so when we look at Jesus, it says that he is someone who is full of grace and truth. He doesn't compromise truth and he doesn't diminish grace in the way that he lives his life. And if Jesus is actually your redeemer, if he's your master and Lord and the kind of person that you're imitating, then grace and truth will be core dimensions of who you are and who you're becoming. See, we're talking in this series about the kind of God who comes into the mess and the kind of people who step into the mess in redemptive ways. And you can't enter messy life and be redemptive without both of these realities, okay? You see, let me just break it down very simply for you. Grace without truth is utterly helpless. If you're just giving grace and grace and grace and there's never any truth, You're only enabling or just giving permission to stupidity, right? That's usually what grace without truth is just helpless. But but truth without grace is weaponized. It just hurts, right? right? Truth without grace hurts. Have you ever been on the receiving end of either one of these things, right? Without the other. How'd it work out for you? But grace and truth is surgical, Right? It always heals. Grace and truth work together. 
They can't be pulled apart. See, grace says, I'm here to help you without condemnation. And truth says, let's be honest about the way things are and let's have integrity about it. Okay? And so, people who have embraced the incarnation are people who live in the pattern of the incarnation. We live as people full of grace and truth and it is an ongoing process. But you know you can live this way because he's lived this way for you. He's done this for you. He, he offers you grace and he offers you truth. He offers you the gospel and he says, truth, you're more wicked than you ever imagined. Grace, you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Okay? And together, I heal you and draw you into eternal relationship with me. So because he extends it to us, we can extend it to the world. So where are you today? Where are you at with all of this? I mean, this is a lot. This is huge. It's potentially life-changing. It's also potentially just inoculating if you walk out of here without considering where it meets you. So let me encourage you today to just ask some questions. Do you need to recalibrate meaning in your life? Is there a place in your life where you've kind of gotten off track of who gives your life meaning and you just, maybe it's seeming kind of meaningless. I encourage you to look at Jesus. He's the word made flesh. The ideal has broken into the real in him. Maybe you need to recalibrate the gap between you and God. There's a gap that's maybe grown. Look at Jesus. He's tabernacled among us. He's your only connection to God. It's not found in your effort to reach him. It's found in his gracious effort to reach you because he loves you. Would you not just consider it? Would you just grab hold of it by faith and just say, I believe that today and claim that in my life and I want that. And if that's you, do that today. Would you? Would you just, between you and the Lord, just say, God, I see what you've done for me and I want that and I accept it. Others of us, maybe you just need to recalibrate how you're postured. Right? How, am I, how am I doing life? Am I doing it full of grace and truth? Have I veered off course and I'm all truth? Have I veered off course and I'm all grace? Jesus helped me to recalibrate around living in both grace and truth. And so let's look to Jesus now. It's a way to stay receptive, this place to recalibrate. It's at the table. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and they're going to lead us to continue in worship together. And as we do, would you come to the table and allow the real bread and the real cup to just remind you again that Jesus has come to you in the reality of real flesh, real blood. And he is worthy of ordering our lives. Let's come to him, recalibrate at the table, and allow him to just speak over you as you receive what he freely offers. All right? Let's stand together and worship.